Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Beyond Sleep Training Podcast a podcast dedicated to sharing real tales of how people have managed sleep in their family outside of sleep training culture. Because sleep looks different with a baby in the house. And because every family is different, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to take. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Kalkadoon people. I pay my respects to the elders of this nation and the many other nations our guests reside in from the past, present and emerging. We honour Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the unique cultural and spiritual relationships to the land, water and seas, as well as their rich contributions to society, including the birthing and nurturing of children. And welcome, everybody, to the Beyond Sleep Training podcast. I'm your host, Carly Grubb. And today in episode four, we are welcoming our very first actual guest to the podcast. And this is the beautiful Elise McMahon. Elise is actually one of our volunteer admins for the Beyond Sleep Training project. And when did you start admitting for us, Elise? I think... When my daughter was six months old, so it would have been the beginning of 2018, I think. So pretty much, so about three years, but it's been a long time. And Elise is one of our fantastic volunteers. You probably, if you're in the group, you will have seen some of her comments and interactions, but she also has a very busy behind the scenes schedule going on as well. So we're very lucky that we can welcome her to the podcast today. And she's going to be sharing a bit about her family's story about moving beyond sleep training. So Elise, I know you're you're over in Hong Kong. Would you like to talk to everybody about you and your family a little bit? Yeah. So um, we <laughs> we are, well, I grew up in a, a family that uh, well, family dynamic that was not necessarily ideal. Um, we didn't have a lot of money when I grew up. We didn't have a lot of um, 
calm in the house. We uh, we had a very tumultuous family relationship. There was lots of fighting. Um, my father struggled a lot with rage, and so when uh, we when my husband and I got married, we had all of these ideas about what we wanted our family unit to look like when we uh, tried to have a baby. We always knew that we wanted to have a baby. Um, and so that was, you know, when uh, he has a job so that I can stop working and be a mum and, and we can afford to give what we needed to give to our child. And for us, what that meant was when he, because uh, he's a pilot, so when he got a, a full-time salaried position as a pilot um, where we could rely on his salary. Um, so he got that very lucky at the time, still lucky um, during these times to still have a job. And um, we moved to Hong Kong and around three months of partying and getting settled in, we decided we'd start trying um, and fell pregnant very, very quickly, which again, very lucky. Um, and you know, my pregnancy was fairly chill. Uh, I didn't have any any medical issues. Nothing came up um, besides the fact that I was so large. Like my stomach, everybody kept asking me if there were two in there. And, of course, being in Hong Kong, I'm already taller and wider than most people that I come into contact with any day. And then having a baby uh, and then that baby still in there at 41 and a half weeks I looked like just a whale walking around in a Hong Kong summer. Um, oh, oh <laughs> in summer too. <laughs> feeling perpetually sweaty and hot and overwhelmed and towards the end there my feet were the size of boats and my ankles weren't ankles anymore and she was just not coming out. Um, so we, they don't let you go more than 10 days overdue. Uh, here so they checked me in for nine days after my due date for an induction uh, and well for a check and then if uh, if it was not going to happen then they induce and you don't get to find out that until you're in the hospital and they do a check and then they tell you I've put a pessary in there and we have induced you there's not a lot of <laughs> communication mm. or choice and I didn't know the right questions to ask and so it just sort of happened that way um, I started feeling contractions very quickly and they were very manageable. And I was like, oh, if this is a contraction, I'm fine, you know, like everybody does. Uh, and it progressed very, very quickly to the point where I was quite uncomfortable and sitting on a bouncing ball like they recommend wasn't helping. A TENS machine made things worse. I felt well and truly out of my depth very quickly um, and no one was listening to me. So I ended up walking around the nurse's station just crying because that's what made me feel better. Um, and oh. finally a young nurse came, uh, that had not seen it all <laughs> came over and asked me what was going on and I told her and showed her that my contractions were coming every two minutes. And she said, I think we need to monitor you. Um, so they hooked me up and within, you know, 20 minutes I was in the labour ward um, being told that I had uterine hyperstimulation. Um, and so it was a very <laughs> painful experience. Um, it was 19 hours and then uh, right at that last hour the paediatrician wasn't available to come and help me push and so they asked me to hold it in. <laughs> mm. and, 
Wow. (laughs) And not push. And I couldn't not push. So I was basically not effectively pushing for an hour. And then when the pediatrician was available, by the time she was available, my daughter was very distressed and came out, out covered in meconium and she had breathed it in. And so she was whipped away to um, special care. So I basically was shown her and then she went away and I was left <laughs> for about 20 minutes with nobody in the room, no baby. My husband had gone off with the baby and no water, no nothing. I could hear a cleaner and I yelled out to her because I was so thirsty and so tired and I didn't know what was going on. Um, yeah, and finally they let me go and meet my daughter 20 minutes before visiting hours were over and so I got 20 minutes with her and then I had to go back to the post-labour ward and try and get some sleep. Um I really struggled expressing colostrum. I was exhausted. Um, I kept asking if I could go and see her and breastfeed and they kept saying in the morning. (laughs) And then in the morning, finally had permission, which was roughly 14 hours later. Um, I went up and held her and breastfed her for the first time, direct fed. At that point, they'd given her um, glucose syrup because she was a big baby of 4.35 kilos and um I just kind of felt like I didn't have permission to be with her I went up to breastfeed I had to put her in the rolling cot go and sit in one of the most comically low chairs for a person having just pushed a person out of themselves like the having to stand up holding your baby to put them in a cot which was above head height while you were sitting down um <laughs> from this low <laughs> just they were comfortable seats but very low and just it, I, I still look back on that thinking that it must be a joke it must be like a joke <laughs> that they've got you like seated in this very low position and you have to stand up using your thighs and legs and not your arms to help you because you're anyway I didn't feel like I could do skin to skin or that I was welcome to just be there with my child. I kept going up, feeding, putting her back because I thought that's what I had to do. And about on the second day, my it was probably a day later that I was told that she was becoming dehydrated. And that was my first adv- advocacy moment where I said, we have her in a humidity crib. <laughs> She's 4.35 kilos. She yeah. doesn't be in a humidity crib she's sweating every time I come up here she's sweating and she's hot and no matter how much I feed her it's not going to make up for the the sweat moisture she's losing because she's sweating oh oh, okay thank you and they moved her out so they they were very like they were willing to listen I just didn't know the questions to ask or the way to advocate for myself I didn't have enough information I went in completely unprepared oh women have been doing this for millions of years and um So it was about the second day where I was sitting and I was trying to wake my daughter up because she was dehydrated and the nurses said that we couldn't take her home until her urine had cleared and all of these things. And a lactation consultant came over and said, you don't have to wake her up, just sit with her on your chest and wait and she will wake up when she's ready. And I went, oh. (laughs) And I cried because I finally had permission to just 
be there and respond to my daughter's needs and not perform functions that I thought were required by the nurses in order to get home. And then uh, we were, they said they needed certain test results and they wanted her to complete her um, antibiotics in the hospital just because. And I said, okay, well, I will sit here on these chairs and sleep here in these chairs then until you let her go because I know she's healthy and I know she doesn't need that because she's fine. <laughs> like, look at her, she's fine. And so they, I kept pushing and um, the good thing about uh people here is that they well people in that hospital is that they listened and they said look if she does uh, have a fever at any point or you know you notice any any difference please bring her back and and we'll um, put her back on antibiotic but she's you know all of the tests are coming back negative she's fine take her home so we finally took her home and I finally um got sleep <laughs> You know, like when you have a newborn, but I'd probably slept 45 minutes at that point in total, um, oh. trying to, because the special care unit is in a separate building to the labour, like the after delivery ward, the after delivery ward. Um, so you go down the elevator and then you cross over to the other building and then you go up in the elevator and you have to wear a mask and tag in. And there's all these processes, um, which mask wearing is completely fine now but at the time it was this big process um so yeah when we got home I was I had felt I felt completely out of my depth like all of the instinctual parts of motherhood that should have just kicked in had been disrupted somehow um and so I just basically picked up my daughter and held her because I hadn't been able to do it until that point. And I don't think I put her down until she was about two. (laughs) (laughs) Because it it sort of had set up this anxious brokenness and I never sort of got over that. I think, and, and at the time I didn't think that anything was wrong, but looking back at the, you know, the intrusive thoughts and the, what I would call psychological pain. I felt like I was being cut by razors when my husband wasn't there. I felt like I was out of my depth. I was like physically uncomfortable with being left alone with my daughter because I didn't have that. <sighs> Needed that support person there to kind of back up. Like yeah, feel like no. you could be that competent. Was it that kind of feeling? Yeah, I felt like I was going to miss something or break something or I didn't know what to do and that was... I now I have a theory now that, um, as I mentioned, my tumultuous upbringing. I feel like when you're still stuck in caring for yourself because you can't trust that you will be taken care of, which is one of those trauma reactions that um, I now put myself in front of a lot of information about, you know, trauma and. Um, the way different brains interact with people, et cetera, because I'm very intensely interested in that. And looking at that, I have, I've created this theory and I'm sure there's research done (laughs) that when you've experienced so much trauma in your life and you do get stuck in that, that individualistic, I must take care of myself first and lack of trust that your needs will be taken care of being needed becomes very painful. That's my little theory in that when i had a person that I was responsible for it became a painful experience at the beginning because I didn't know how to care for somebody else while not knowing that I was 
going to be taken care of like in a it's a trust thing isn't it yeah and my husband is very nurturing and very caring so it's not a it wasn't a logical response it was just that deep fight or flight response in myself that came out when I saw this person and I knew that that was me that if I wasn't there there was no one else there um and so I had to I had to take on my own stuff while my, my child was at that time blissfully blissfully sleeping. I, you know, read articles and had a look at at what kind of parent I wanted to be um, because I had no idea. I was very stuck in, I don't know, I, I hadn't read the books. I hadn't done any of the research. I thought it would all just kick in. And the only thing that kicked in when... <laughs> My baby was on the outside of me. Was ah, what do I do? <laughs> and uh, so, so, when you first started looking, what what kind of advice were you seeing? Like, what kind of like were you particularly drawn to a style of um, parenting, or was it more just theories? Or what what was capturing your attention at that time? I was so lucky that the friends I had made in my journey so far in Hong Kong, like other mothers that had been mothers before me of the pilot group that my husband was a part of were gentle, breastfeeding, responsive parents. And so what came up on my Facebook feed was, you know, Pinky McKay and the Milk Meg. And I just was so lucky that that's what I was exposed to straight away because that's not the thing that's done here. Um, breastfeeding, that is, we do have quite low breastfeeding rates here um, okay. for a variety of reasons. But um, at the moment, the government is doing what they can, I guess, or trying to increase their support of mums so that we can increase that rate. Um, but I was just really lucky that I had that, available to me and from there I found Grubby Mummy and the Grubby Bubbies <laughs> and I found out that she'd created this book <laughs> I'm sorry this group on yeah. Facebook and um I joined the group and saw articles on why African babies don't cry and you know attachment theory and uh keeping your baby close and baby wearing which is very um traditional here so the May Day carriers they were that's from this part this region of Asia um because we, we, we you, you see prams in our area but um most of the time we were in central at the time there's no space on the on the sidewalk for a big pram with a baby in it so people are just getting around with their babies strapped to their chest and and getting about life and so I was just I, I think I was lucky I appreciate the information that I came across when I came across it because no matter what I tried when people said that they had found something that worked with their children for comfort and sleep, nothing worked for mine. She was sleepy until about two and a half months and then she woke up and <laughs> she wanted to be in your face, looking at your face. She still doesn't like to be back carried. She's three and three quarters and um we went for a hike yesterday on an island and she still doesn't like to be on my back she wants to she go, can I go on your front and I said oh honey my hips and back don't they can't 
do that. That's anyway. a lot of weight on the front. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 15 kilos on my front, not, not okay. Um, so, yeah, and she's like, but I can't see Will and I can't see you. And uh, she's, it's, you know, that's who she's always been. Um, with sleep, she she was a rock star sleeper until she woke up and then she she just wasn't anymore. And I thought I had done something wrong and I thought there was an answer and I thought that if I could just X, Y, Z, um, and so many people gave me suggestions and nothing felt right. Um, so I think that's why I started searching for information that felt right for me. Um, I think having gone through that post-birth experience where I wasn't allowed to hold my baby, it had made me quite resolute in the fact that I didn't want to choose to not hold her. Um, and so... She just, she she needed me and I needed her at that point. And so we spent a long time on the couch. <laughs> she was being held. My husband, she had this long witching hour where she would just feed one boob, next boob, next boob, one boob, next boob for like two hours in the evening. And my husband would feed me food, cut it up and put it on a fork and put ah, it on. Good man, good man. <laughs> Try not to drop it on her head. <laughs> Oh, yeah, the crumbs on the baby's head. That's almost like par for the course for a breastfeeding baby, I think. Just end up with it on there. I don't know if you can avoid that. I knew she wasn't allergic to nuts because I kept dropping them. (laughs) It's one way to test it out, I guess. So did you, when you, like, before you brought your babe home, did you set up a a nursery area or where were you thinking she'd sleep? Oh, it's funny. uh, Until about two weeks before I gave birth, we had the pretty expensive cot and the aqua and white nursery all set up in the room next door and now the room next door is like two three steps away so because hong kong apartments and so it wasn't like they were down you know i'd put her down the end of the hall but i just about two weeks before she was born i freaked out and told my husband we needed a bassinet to be in the room (laughs) and Um, She slept in there for about two months before she grew out of it because big baby. And um, I tried to put her down in the room next door and didn't like it. So (laughs) You didn't like it or you didn't like it? Both. (laughs) (laughs) So we took the whole thing apart, brought the crib into our room, put it in the room, which then meant we had to move it every time we were opening the wardrobe. And... um, (laughs) We, uh, she slept-ish in there for maybe a month. And then when she woke up, she was waking up very often. Right. So shall we get back to, sorry for the interruption. Uh, So we were talking about, um, so you'd move the cot into your bedroom. It just fitted. You had to do those things. So was she sleeping? Like when when you had her in your room then, like she'd moved, grown out of the bassinet, was she still sleeping relatively okay? Said so she started in the bassinet or was she was she actually sleeping in the cot, I guess is the question. Um, not really. I was <laughs> trying to put her down in the cot thinking that it was necessary and um, I, <laughs> uh, I was just, 
turning myself in circles, trying to get her to sleep longer in the in the cot. Um, and I went over a friend's house and she sort of guiltily mentioned that she was bringing her baby into her bed and it just hadn't occurred to me that that was an option. <laughs> Uh-huh. I don't know why. Um, and I think this was all before I had found uh, the Beyond Sleep Training Project. Um, that's when I started looking into what um, what we can do, you know, safely to um, improve her sleep and improve um, her feeling safe. And um, I was talking to friends and, you know, a friend mentioned that she was um, – bringing her baby into bed with her and then another friend mentioned she'd tried pick up put down and I <laughs> put Paige to sort of drowsy put her down she looked at me cried I picked her up and then I was like she's not gonna settle she's not gonna get settled enough for me to put her down again and so that was my foray into sleep tra training and where it ended for me because I was like this this just not this is not my baby she just doesn't do the chilled out fall asleep thing and that's fine um oh see I so admire that I wish I could have just like you know given a couple of things a crack and been like yeah no no I can see this isn't going to work for us or it doesn't suit us but yeah no I was just so hell-bent like I really felt like it that was how so I really admire that good on you I think it's exposure too right so I'm in a culture that is not my own and it's a very very different one and so it does lend you to question everything you've been taught and what you're told and mm. and it opens conversations and we've had a lot of conversations here about the way things are done in different cultures because there's also a very big um, immigrant community from countries all over the world here and they all have their own ways of doing things and so I think having that exposure to so many different views leads you to trust looking into what works for you a bit more than when you're in this homogenous population where something always works for everybody like you you tend to think well why isn't it working for me then it should work for me right whereas you know, when a doctor says something here, you do think, well, now is that their values or is that the what they've learnt and how does that relate to what I'm used to from back home and, do, you know, so like chiropractic. It kind of broadens the view. Yeah. It doesn't have that strict right, wrong kind of um, thing going on because you've got this broader cultural perspective. Yeah. So it does make you think a bit more about, what's working and what's not working and and like health here for example meat is a um more of a seasoning here it's a little bit of meat with a lot of veg and a lot of rice in meals here and they have one of the longest living populations in history um so you know when you do sort of think about I think when you're in one country, you grow up in that country, you're surrounded by people who grew up in that country, you get the same messages over and over again about how things are done. And so it does lead you to to believe a little bit more in what you're told. Whereas I think for me, being removed from that comfort of home, I didn't have, you know, my, my parents weren't here giving me advice. My husband's parents weren't here giving me advice. There was no one you know, I didn't have aunties and uncles and they're all over the world. So <laughs> I didn't You're really carving your own path. Yeah. Find, and finding your own feet, what felt right for you. 
and being exposed to a lot of different stories and a lot of different ways of doing things where everybody thinks that the way they're doing things is the right way of doing things. And so when you're like me, where I, I don't think the way I grew up with was definitely the right way to do things, it does lead you to question everything you're told and to give space to more ideas. So yeah, with the pick up, put down method, I was I put her down and she wailed and then I picked her up and held her to my chest and she calmed. And I was like, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> That's fantastic. It's a great way to, and see, I guess this is also part of the whole idea that people can try things like there's no harm in trying, but it's the listening that goes along with it. And actually being able to trust your baby and trust yourself to know when something's not a good fit for you. Um, Because you never know, you might've put her down and she might've fallen asleep, but you know, (laughs) same genes same parenting, very responsive, breastfeeding. She's tandem feeding her two gorgeous kids now. And she makes these beautiful u- unicorns that just chill out and go to sleep when they're yeah. tired. And I'm like, what? That's not, hey. <laughs> I know. And that's, this is the thing. There really is a huge spectrum in, in the way our babies find sleep. And it's not like it, there's so much where it's, not that somebody's doing something particularly right. That is why their baby sleeps that way. And I think that's a bit of a lesson most of us have to learn. Now I can just see that we're coming up to our half hour for our episode. And I wanted to make sure that I checked in with you for our tip of the week, because I'm going to be asking all of our guests for what their top tip is that they'd like to share with our listeners. What would be your tip of the week, Elise? My biggest tip is if somebody who doesn't know your child tells you that they should be able to do anything (laughs) and you know that that is not within their capacity, just let it go, let it wash over. They should be able to anything, anything at all. They shouldn't be breastfeeding as much. They shouldn't be waking as much. They should be able to go to sleep on their own by now. Daddy should be able to settle them. All of the things that come up. The shoulds. Yeah. And the shouldn'ts. And the shouldn'ts. They shouldn't be needing you this much. They shouldn't be crying as often as they, like everything, everything that has should in it, question, question shoulds. I love that. It doesn't fit. And if it does, look into it. But should is a word that I think is overutilized. (laughs) I would. I would totally agree. And I think that's a really great note to end this episode on, Elise. Um, and, but thank you so much for coming on and being our very first guest to talk a bit about your journey beyond sleep training. I feel like we might have another episode with you later down the track so we can hear a bit more about your story because we only got really to the very beginning. Um, so if you would like to, I would love to have you back on for a future episode. Sure. Awesome. Thank you so much, Elise. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast today. The information we discussed was just that, information only. It is not specific advice. If you take any action following something you've heard from our show today, it is important to make sure you get professional advice about your unique situation before you proceed, whether that advice be legal, financial, accounting, medical, or any other advice. Please reach out to me if you do have any questions or if there's a topic you'd really like us to be covering. And if you know somebody who'd really benefit from listening to our podcast, please be sure to pass our name along. Also check out our free peer support group, the Beyond Sleep Training Project and our wonderful website, www.littlesparklers.org. 
If you'd like even more from the show, you can join us as a patron on Patreon and you can find a link for that in our show notes. If listening is not really your jam, we also make sure we put full episode transcripts on our little sparklers website for you to also enjoy and fully captioned YouTube videos as well on our little sparklers channel. So thanks again for listening today. We really enjoy bringing this podcast to you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.